Chapter 6, Damages and Remedies. Part 1, Types of Damages. Contract Tip, Different Types of Contract Damages. Keeping track of the damage types and their meanings has always been hard for me. I have trouble remembering which is which. That some have two names for the same type makes it even harder. Here are three questions that I use to keep the type of damage straight in my head. One, do we want the damage to punish a wrongdoer or compensate the harmed party? Punitive damages, also known as exemplary damages, punish. And nominal damages recognize a wrong has been done. But the rest of contract damages are compensatory. Two, is it indirect or direct? Direct damages, also known as general damages, are the natural and typical damages that flow from the breach. Indirect damages are the other compensatory damages that are not direct. Three, within indirect damages, is it consequential or incidental? Consequential damages, also known as special damages, are not typical and flow from any known special circumstances of the harmed party. Incidental damages are costs and expenses that are incurred because of the breach. Contract tip, consequential damages when they apply despite a waiver. Consequential damages may still apply even when the parties have a waiver in their contract. So including a waiver does not mean that you are always free and clear. Here are four situations when you may still face consequential damages despite having a waiver in your contract. One, your waiver exceptions. Your consequential damages waiver usually has exceptions. If the exceptions are broadly drafted, such as a breach of intellectual property obligations or a breach of confidentiality, you may have exposure to potential consequential damages for those claims. Two, judgment against your counterparty. Your indemnity clause may obligate you to reimburse your counterparty and cover their losses and damages paid to a third party that arose from your product or services. If your counterparty pays consequential damages to a third party, you may have to reimburse and cover those. Three, failure of the essential purpose. If your warranty has an exclusive remedy that proves inadequate, your entire waiver of consequential damages may be unenforceable. It depends on your jurisdiction and the reasonableness of your liability cap. Four, unconscionable. Courts may not enforce consequential damage waivers that are unconscionable. Contract tip. Incidental damages, the basics. Incidental damages are the costs and expenses incurred while dealing with the breach by the other party. They include warehouse storage costs, for example, for the sellers when the buyers improperly reject the goods, and for buyers when sellers deliver the wrong goods. The Uniform Commercial Code, UCC, allows sellers and buyers to collect incidental damages if they are reasonable. It perplexes me that most sale of goods 
have both parties waiving their rights to incidental damages as part of the section that waives consequential damages. But why? I don't really get it. It seems reasonable that sellers and buyers should be reimbursed for their incidental damages. Consider whether that's really what is best for your client under that particular deal. I understand that the parties may want to limit incidental damages as part of an overall cap on liability, but you may be better off not waiving them as part of your standard practice. Contract tip, liquidated damages, the basics. Liquidated damages, or LDs, offer a quick and predictable measure for a specific breach of the contract. I typically see LDs used with delivery delays. If the vendor is late, the vendor has to pay a fixed amount per day or week of delay. It seems simple enough, but LD provisions are anything but simple. Courts are reluctant to enforce LDs. They tend to do so only when narrowly drafted and including all the bells and whistles. To avoid problems with enforcement, make sure your provisions have these five elements. 1. A specific breach that triggers the LD. 2. A precise measurement of the cost unit for the LD. 3. A precise measurement of time to which the cost applies. 4. A recitation of the fact that it's not a penalty. And 5. A recitation that the amount of damages would be difficult to determine, the amount is a reasonable estimate, and it is the sole remedy and liability for this specific breach. Some vendors ask for a grace period before the LD applies and a cap on the amount. When I represent customers, I try to limit the breach period or scope so they have a remedy if it continues. For example, the LD is the sole remedy for a delay of up to 30 days, but any longer is material default with a different remedy. Contract tip, liquidated damages, watch out for no end date. Liquidated damages are complicated beasts that require drafting precision. Most contracts get the basics right and include the required language. Yay for lawyers. But they often leave out what happens when the triggering event goes on indefinitely. A typical LD says that if the seller does not deliver by the due date, the seller will pay 1% of the price per week of delay up to 8% maximum. Sounds okay, right? Well, not for a buyer still waiting for delivery at week 10, week 20, or later. The buyer agreed that the LDs are the exclusive remedy, so the buyer may be stuck with that remedy no matter how long the delay or the impact on its business. Now, sure, smart litigators could make arguments, but they'd struggle to get around that exclusive remedy. I was part of a case like this. Our recovery for nine months of delay on a critical piece of equipment was the 10% LD cap. I learned my lesson. Since then, when I represent buyers, I always draft LDs as an exclusive remedy for the first X days of delivery delay. I then identify the buyer's other rights if the delivery has not occurred by the time we reach the maximum LD cap. 
Part 2, Drafting Techniques. Contract Tip, Big Picture Strategies for Limit of Liability Provisions. Contract Tip, Big Picture Strategies for Limit of Liability Provisions. Limits of liability set a maximum financial exposure for the deal. Before you launch into the language, make sure you understand the risks of doing the deal and how those risks are allocated between the parties. There's no one-size-fits-all perfect limit of liability provision. We need the context to adjust and calibrate for this client and this contract. Here are three things I consider before I think about drafting a limit of liability provision. One, what is the relative likelihood of each party's risk? In a typical commercial contract, the buyer's primary obligation is to pay money. The seller does a lot more and is more likely to cause damages. Also, consider how you expect to allocate the risk based on what you know up front. Two, what are the risk factors specific to this deal? Evaluate the factors in your deal that may reduce or enhance the potential liability. Look at the kind of good or service provided and the types of things that could go wrong. Three, what is the industry standard approach? Each industry has a different approach to limits of liability. In some, the norm caps the liability at a price paid under the agreement. In others, it is by purchase order value. Contract tip, how to decide a contract's limit of liability. I wish I had an easy rule for you about setting the maximum liability in a commercial contract. Industry standards provide a starting point, but I encourage you not to stop there. Do the analysis to make sure the provision works for the deal. Here's the four-part framework I use for deciding how to set the limit of liability. One, is my client more or less likely to cause damages under this agreement? It can depend on the seller's scope, the buyer's involvement in the design, and how the end customer will use the product. Two, what is the likely proportionality of potential damages that may occur? I think about whether both parties will suffer if something goes wrong, or will one side bear the brunt of the likely problems? Three, what are the risk factors for the deal? I evaluate the performance requirements, the potential for third-party claims, the creditworthiness and the reputation of the counterparty, and the risks with these goods or services. Four. What opportunities are there to mitigate risk? I think about whether likely claims are covered by and within our insurance policy limits. I explore whether this is a risk we shift to third parties and if we have systems in place to mitigate that risk. My advice is to think through the real world risk and exposure before starting with numbers and calculations. Then ensure the maximum liability provision aligns with that risk and exposure. Contract tip. Ranked options for limit of liability provisions. There is no single right way to set limits of liability. 
the better way to approach these sections is to recognize that there are a continuum of options that increase or decrease a party's risk. You can choose a provision that provides almost no liability, one that provides unlimited liability, or the many variations in between. Here are a range of possible approaches from the highest to the lowest risk for a seller. 1. No provision limiting a seller's liability, i.e. unlimited risk. 2. Seller's liability limited for a narrow set of claims, unlimited for the rest. 3. Seller's liability limited to the value of the agreements between the seller and its affiliates and the buyer and its affiliates. 4. Seller's liability is limited to the value of all agreements just between the seller and the buyer. 5. Seller's liability is limited to the greater of X dollars or the value of the agreement. 6. Seller's liability is limited to the value of the agreement. 7. Seller's liability is limited to the value of the agreement for X months. 8. Seller's liability is limited to the smallest transaction document, usually a statement of work or purchase order. Knowing the range of options helps us think about which approach is right for this deal. And remember, there is no morality in setting an amount nor any uniform definition of what's fair as a limit of liability. In my experience, the approach depends on how the contract allocates risks, the industry standards, and the party's bargaining power.